Hi, this is Ed Begley Jr. And you're listening to Everything Fab Four on Salon.com. Welcome to Everything Fab Four, a new podcast focused on fun and intelligent stories about the Beatles. I'm your host, Ken Womack, music culture columnist for Salon.com and a Beatles scholar and historian. No other band or popular phenomenon, for that matter, has enjoyed the global impact of the Beatles. They are part of our human fabric. They created an enduring music that brings people together, and just about everyone has their own Beatles story to tell, some that are surprisingly deep and unexpected. With each episode, we'll be featuring a new guest to share their Fab Four journey, along with amazing theme music from Black Rabbit. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everybody has a story. Class has so much to do with the way that everyone is viewed in England, that it's less about race and so much more about class. To be working class at that time was really um, to be invisible, and so... Brian really brought them into uh, being in a kind of a, a very exciting way. I think because he was gay and because he was invested and enamored with their male beauty, that he could see, like, how can I package this in a beautiful way? Today's guest is Margaret Cho, an American stand-up comedian, actress, musician, fashion designer, and author. She is perhaps best known for her stand-up routines in which she critiques social and political problems, particularly race and sexuality. Cho first came to prominence after creating and starring in the ABC sitcom All-American Girl in the mid-1990s before establishing herself as a leading stand-up comic. Cho has also achieved renown in fashion and music and she has even advanced her own clothing line. She has also frequently supported LGBTQ rights and has won awards for humanitarian efforts on behalf of women, Asian Americans, and the LGBTQ community. As an actress, she has acted in such roles as Charlene Lee in It's My Party and John Travolta's FBI colleague in the action movie Face Off. Cho was part of the cast of the TV series Drop Dead Diva on Lifetime Television, in which she appeared as paralegal assistant Terry Lee. In 2012, she was nominated for an Emmy Award for her guest-starring role as dictator Kim Jong-il on 30 Rock. Her growing portfolio as a musician includes her 2008 single, I Cho Am a Woman, on iTunes. The song, produced by Desmond Child, was featured on her VH1 series. Throughout 2010, she worked on a full-length album. For a while, she considered the title Ban Jovi before settling on Cho Dependent. The album was nominated for a 2010 Grammy Award for Best Comedy Album. She also starred in the Showtime comedy special, Margaret Cho, Cho Dependent. Welcome, Margaret Cho. It sounds like you've been uh, becoming everything fab for yourself. Well, you know, I'm trying. Um, I'm trying my very best, and um, I, I, I've only met two. I've only met Ringo. And Paul, um, and then the other two died before I got a chance to. 
Right, and it sounds like George uh, would have been your character for sure. George was my favorite, although my real favorite is Brian Epstein, who I think people forget. I mean, he made a lot of mistakes. Um, the biggest one was he did sort of the uh, Murray Wilson thing and selling off all of their merchandising rights much too early. Um, before he even knew what that would have brought them financially. Although I think they're all doing sort of okay money-wise. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if we could we could go back in time and, and talk about your story. I, I, I have to admit, I was an early, I'm an early Margaret Cho adopter. Thank you. Did you, I mean, did you grow up in a musical family? How did, how did you co- come, how did music come by way of, of Margaret Cho in your life? Um, my first instrument is the piano, which I started around seven years old. And um, I uh, took lessons every week. I would do recitals every other month or so. And it was so terrifying to play because you know, you're playing this sort of like recital classics, you know, Moonlight Sonata or Furelise or all of these um, Mozart things. And you uh, you can't make a mistake and you can't uh, make the smallest mistake because everybody knows the songs. So you can't um, you can't alter it at all. And that's probably why I wanted to be a stand-up comedian because you could say whatever you want and nobody realizes it's a mistake or um, rock and roll. There's room for error, which actually could be um, quite exciting too. So there's a lot of um, music training that I've had. Um, my family were um, also singers. They, um, My dad was a very accomplished pianist and he met my mom in a church choir because he was uh, going around churches in Korea and playing piano and she was a soloist. So they met through the music scene and um, I was a singer when I was very, very young at five years old. I was fired from my first band at five because I um, kept waving at my mom when we were on television. (laughs) So I couldn't, couldn't do it. Couldn't stick in the, um, the showbiz life, um, which is good anyway. So it worked out okay. Okay. So you're, uh, how do you move then toward, uh, to uh, away from classical and toward pop or rock? Um, that didn't happen until much later. I think that I, well, I picked up the guitar, um, off and on and I didn't start seriously studying it until I was about 40, but I always love rock and roll. I was always hanging out, um, backstage, uh, going to shows, going to, um, you know, I think going to shows, going to studios, just hanging out. There's something about it that musicians and comedians just get along. We're um, kind of like in the same lifestyle. We're entertainers. We keep odd hours. Um, We're often in cities where we're the only other person that we know. Everybody's on tour. Um, And, you know, like I'm a fan of going to a sound check and hanging out and then getting to meet the artist that way. So actually the last tour uh, that I did that before lockdown was um, March 16th. I went uh, 2020. I went to see Orville Peck's sound check and uh, in in hopes of meeting him and in and uh, 
he wasn't there, but I left a note and his show ended up getting postponed because of the pandemic. And so he came to my show. So it's a natural affinity that I have for musicians, artists that I like. Um, it's just a meaningfulness to it. So I, I think uh, through that, it allowed me a lot of collaboration. I learned a lot from people like John Bryan and Fiona Apple or Tegan and Sarah or Andrew Bird or Ani DeFranco and the ways that they record. I made a record um, in uh, 2010 and, and I made another one in 2016. And I'm just very... Uh, I ha there's a couple of records that I have made that haven't been released. So I'm very interested in it all. I'm so glad you mentioned uh, folks like Fiona Apple and, and John Bryan and, of course, and Andrew Bird. Those are artists that really speak to me. It's, they have magic around them. What's it like to, to know and work with folks like that? Well, it's, it's just how exacting they are, you know, how precise. They're um, closer to mathematicians or, or um they're engaging in like a kind of a quantum physics. Like it, it's a very exacting procedure. People think of rock and roll as being this very loose, um, wild lifestyle. And it can be, there's elements of that, but for musicians like, um, Andrew Bird, who's been playing since he was four years old, you know, there's, um, a science to his music and you can hear it in, um, the way that he composes. I think he's probably closer to a composer than he is just a musician. There's, there's quite a lot of symphonic arrangements happening. That's the same with John Bryan. Um, but John Bryan, it kind of comes at it in a very, um, what is it like synesthesia where you taste color? Yeah. He hears color. And, um, you know, when he was first starting as a producer, he was telling me that he and Amy Mann were working together and, um, he didn't really know they didn't, they couldn't make a decision because there's too many choices about what to put on what track. And so he, um, would, they did it by color, like red drums, red guitar, red bass, <laughs> that kind of thing. And that, that sort of helped them narrow it down. But, um, recording with John Brian is a very exacting process where you're going through his huge library of vintage instruments and playing each one and deciding and putting together the, the band that he's going to play all the instruments to, um, for your sound. Like it, it's, it's like he, uh, doesn't change strings on certain guitars so that they'll have like an old dusty sound. Um, you know, he has, uh, just these ways of doing it and, you know, you're not going to get out of there until you lay, you've laid down at least two or 300 takes of the song, which I appreciate. Oh, that, that really brings a lot to life when I think about, you know, his music and uh, especially and and color is the word. Um, it has all of these textures and it, it feels like you're inside a story or something. So what, what, what about your Yoko Ono song? I was searching for it. Oh, it's not out. It's now it's, it's, it's on the record that I made, uh, with David Garza in Austin. Uh, we made a record, we wrote some of it in Austin, and then we wrote the rest of it at Sonic Ranch, which is in Tonio, which is um, a very interesting place. Um, it's I was up there with the, the Mexican band Zoe. They're kind of like um, Mexican Radiohead. They're huge. They're incredible. And uh, they had taken over the ranch, and they were doing um, a documentary about their album, which is I think it's on Netflix. So I... I, I follow them but i i know that um we sort of like hit a hidden sort of uh 
I guess box ca- boxcar willied their journey by taking, they were renting out the whole ranch. So we just like snuck in there and recorded a record when they weren't using the studios. And, uh, so the, uh, I'm the, the, the Yoko Ono song, I'm the one in Ono, is on that record. It's a disco track that I was actually hoping to have uh, Yoko Ono record. Um, so I sent it to Sean, who is a friend of mine, and uh, he cried when he heard it. He loved it. And uh, so, you know, it's something that I'm still hoping, like, that, that, that whole record is done, but I haven't figured out exactly what will happen. It's almost like when you make music, for me, I make it for myself, and so, like, putting it out is sort of another effort that I have to sort of see and figure out. Well, thank you. I, you know, I, I'm probably like you. I'm always looking for new music. And, yeah, and you had me at Mexican Radiohead, so. Zoe. It's Z-O-A. Or Z-O-E. Zoe. <laughs> in, in, in Spanish. It's Zoe. They're like, they embody, you know how, like, sometimes um, Mexican taste in music it's very british they love the smiths they love the cure they love um the colder it is they love it like the cold music of like manchester they love it in the warm uh climate of mexico it's a very interesting thing so the the music is like very um evocative of the north of England, like it's like a teenage fan club. That's as far north as I, I know. And if, if you're not listening to teenage fan club, then you're going to Iceland. <laughs> That's probably farther north. You know, I, I like thinking about music in terms of latitude and longitude. <laughs> That's new for me. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's, it's very real. Like I think that um, the best music comes from extremes and climate when it's rainy and cold outside there's nothing to do but stay inside and make music whether that's detroit or um anywhere in england you know people in in minneapolis make great records because they're inside most of the time (laughs) i love it so how did you get from uh the girl who's waving to her mom from the stage or maybe you already there to becoming a, a comedian. Well, I also love stand-up comedy. Like I loved uh, watching stand-up comedy. I loved SCTV and SNL, and I would watch it just constantly. You know, there was um, in the eighties, uh, cable had just sort of started, and so Nickelodeon was showing like old episodes of SCTV. You could see. SCTV on public television sometimes. So I was just so mad for it and really into it. And then I loved um, French and Saunders. I loved uh, all, all the British comedy, like everything that was happening comedically. Monty Python was a very big influence. Um, and I always loved like that Michael Palin like got to create this sort of like very interesting lane for himself as a travel journalist and you know like I realized that comedians can really do everything and I just wanted to be a comedian and there was a big comedy boom happening in San Francisco in the 80s um, where people like Robin Williams were performing uh, Bobcat Goldthwait was emerging um, there was a lot of great great stuff and so it was easy to slip into and go out and do and I had a comedy partner at first who was um, in my class at school, it was Sam Rockwell, who's a very famous Academy Award winning actor. 
now. But there's uh, some footage of us on YouTube doing sketches uh, that you can see. <laughs> but when we're like real little kids, it's real funny to see. We'll be back with more from Margaret Cho after these messages. We're back with Margaret Cho. Um, can you tell me about your Beatles origin story? Where's the first moment in your life where you discovered them? Um, my parents had very few rock and roll records, um, but one of them was Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band. Like the, the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club record was fascinating to me because I wanted to know who all of those people were on the cover. And I was like, are all these people in this band? And um, the music was so confusing because it didn't sound like anything else. You know, there was just so much happening. Um, things like, you know, uh, just songs moving into other songs with different styles and, and um, these differing, differing opinions and these like sound effects. Um, you're just like blown away by the landscape of a record like that. Like you just, the only other rock record my parents had were, um, was Engelbert Humperdinck, which I don't know if it's a rock record, but I guess so, sort of, um, sort of, yeah, it's pop record. Um, but it was, uh, it was a great thing to be able to listen to and kind of like consume and for that to be your sort of first rock record. And then, um, when I was a little older, then I started to explore more of the Beatles. And um, I even had like a, I went to London when I was probably about 16 and I got um, an old school jacket that was like striped and I would have a button, a badge that had um, the, that was like Fab Four era, you know, that sort of help, I think it was the help costumes. And so I had that and um, I, I always thought like, oh, what a great time to be um, a kid is in the 60s and going to see the Beatles and, and you know, getting to ride that sort of first British invasion. Um, you know, all the bands then to me just seemed so incredible and Swinging London seemed so incredible. Although I did get to see like London in quite a few great incarnations when, you know, you were going to like the goth nightclubs in the eighties where, um, these men were wearing their grandmother's clothes because they didn't have like goth fashion yet. So you would wear like velvet and lace from your grandmother, which I love. I think it's so great. And, um, you know, it, it was, uh, you know, these bands like Mission UK and Susie and the Banshees and, of course, The Cure and all of, all of these incredible, incredible artists. So I got to be there then. And then I got to go back in 1994 where you were witnessing Britpop, you know, with Blur and Oasis fighting. I have a hard time deciding which side I'm on. Um, I really do go back and forth. But I'm really kind of, I don't know, like it. It's, it's very difficult. Like, I, I really love both Oasis and Blur, but I love all of the other. I love Pulp. Um, I love uh, it, all of the Sleeper. I, I love Elastica. I love all of those pop bands, to me, really are evocative of a time, and it holds up. Oh, it really does. I, I just watched the new Oasis documentary, which is the old Oasis documentary, obviously, from 1996, but... It really does hold up, and 
and the guitar music of those two bands, you know, just pick on Champagne Supernova for a moment, right? So great. I mean, that thing's an epic. It's an epic, and I, I mean, you know, it, I just wish that I was at Nebworth. Like, I, every once in a while, I, I think, oh, I could have gone to Nebworth. I, I, don't, I couldn't have. I wasn't there, but I, was, I wasn't even close. But what a great... What a great time to be at Nebworth or, um, you know, just to sort of witness the fights between um, Noel and Liam. I just, oh, so awful. Like just Liam, like lambasting Noel from the audience. Like Noel tried to sing the songs. Like it's it's just a, this, um, it should be in the Bible. It's like a Cain and Abel story um come to uh 90s england it's it's quite powerful it really is in that story it's heartbreaking and it's funny first you're just horrified for them and their you know their family but then there's just something ridiculous and it moves into the bizarre but i guess if you look at anything long enough that happens right yeah i mean i think it's what it is is that that much fame that much power and you're you're fueling an already difficult sibling rivalry and then you're putting it on the front page there's a lot going on you know you had this really invasive emergence of tabloid media coming into a a a power of its own that hadn't necessarily existed before. A lot of rock journalism before that had been really about fawning um, over these rock stars or uh, lambasting their Bacchanalian lives. But this was like a tabloid media that was, we're like, you know, in England, they're out to get you. You know, it's real cutthroat in a way that it isn't necessarily here. Or I think we sort of adopted that here. Um, and so we sort of like see all this stuff emerging at the same time where you have these young, incredibly talented people who need each other and already don't get along all that well. Well, we're, we're performing some important psychoanalysis for them right now. I, I really I would love to do a therapy session with um, the Gallagher's. <laughs> I mean, that would be like a great, to, that would be like a great, like to be like a rock band, like a mediator, like the guys that do it in um, from some kind of monsters of a Metallica documentary when they're, because people in bands really get mad. And I couldn't imagine if you're also related to somebody in your band, that's got to be even harder, but then their voices sound so great. So who knows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Creative differences, as I tell my students, are real. Yes. You know, and they're terrifying um, when they happen and people will go to war and dismiss each other what may, over what seem, may, may seem like small things. Imagine rock star therapy, super tramp. They could still be together getting along those two lead singers. Oh, that would be great. Yeah. Or even I think the Who still perform together but they have to go in completely separate planes separate buses um you know or if it's mediating something uh well i actually really like the additions of fleetwood mac because neil finn is a friend and i'm a you know long 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 time fan of split ends and crowded house and he was able to do a, a band with his brother for a very long time so two bands with his brother yeah, Fleetwood Mac could use some help. I mean, Lindsey Buckingham is important to that group, though. Well, I think that Lindsey is really like there's there is something to Lindsey's um, 
catalog, his voice, his playing. But, you know, in, in a sense, I think that the story of Lindsay is quite difficult. You know, like his personality combined with everybody else's. Like he's the one that there, there's a lot of history and a lot of anger. And, but we never, we'll never really know unless we're actually in the band. That's right. <laughs> Or doing therapy for the band. Yeah, when you're doing therapy for the band, that's when you know. <laughs> that's interesting about split ends. I was an early adopter there with, what was that song called? I Got You. Yes, that's a awesome. great one. I, but I got it for the wrong reason. I remember it had a laser cut record mm. in 1979 or something, and it was mm-hmm. a laser cut record. And so that's I was incredible. like, mom and dad, I have to have the laser cut record. And then it yeah. turned out it was good. It's really good. <laughs> I think that that record is called Waita, which is party in Maori. And um, they are, uh, th- that band was so incredible. You know, Split Ends was like an art band from like an art college. And um, they they made their own costumes. You know, all of those Commedia del Arte costumes were actually sewn by Noel Crombie, um, who uh, was kind of like, the hype man in the band. I'm not exactly sure what instrument he played, but he was sort of like the Bez. If, if you sort of take the Happy Mondays, he was like the Bez. Every band sort of has a Bez. But they're a really good band. So I feel like he was like an early Bez. But uh, uh, he he sort of curated that like Commedia dell'arte look, and they kind of came out where, you know, at that same time, punk rock was happening, and you didn't put a lot of effort into your look, or if you did, you tried to make it not look like a lot of effort. But here's these like crazy foppish giant suit wearing Commedia dell'arte out of the 1600s looking guys playing new wave. It was very shocking. And then they become a crowded house, which is, um, it, it's like a, a, a 90s adult contemporary band. I mean, it is like the, the, the definite um, definition of a, a burnished wood uh, <laughs> band where you paint your album cover <laughs> and uh, you have these beautifully crafted songs, which have a little bit to do with the Beatles because there's so much going on in them. There's so many textures and sound. And uh, it, it's really, I, I really love Crowded House. I think I've seen them play in five different countries on different continents in you know over 30 years i i'm I'm such a fan my my youngest son uh many years ago came in and announced to me once that don't dream it over don't dream it's over is the greatest pop song ever made it's true and and he will accept no argument (laughs) (laughs) it's true because it's got um it's got some Percy Sledge overtones. There's Mellotron. There's um, great, I think it's like just beautiful guitar work. I think Neil is, is such a great guitarist. And it's a three, at that point, they were a trio. So it's a oh. big sound to create from three guys. And it is a big sound and a great video, which did. Yes, it's a great video. <laughs> so I, I, I was interested when I was doing, doing my research on you. Um, when you get involved in something, you take a deep dive, right? You yes. you get in there and you research, such as your interest in the Beach Boys at one time, where you just read everything about them. Yes, yes. And, Tell uh, me about these passions of yours. I uh, Yeah, I'll go through phases where I'll only listen to um, 
certain bands or certain styles of bands. So in the Beach Boys era, like I was only going to see Brian Wilson or the Wondermints. Um, I was only going to see um, these, uh, you know, events where you would see like, you know, Al Jardine and friends and family, or you would see, I, I hadn't gone to see Mike Love because I have some issues with Mike Love, but I Definitely, this this. I think Mike Love has some issues. <laughs> Mike Love has love. he needs some, some therapy sessions. No matter how yes. much TM he does, he's never going to be Zen to me. Um, <laughs> but I I really was like invested in the sounds. Um, I just fell into it, and I read every book um, about it, whether that was like Heroes and Villains or or um, Brian's book, and um, you know you can get very deep into their sound because. In, in the sense, it mirrors the Beatles in that they were almost doing like a battle of the bands, but over the Atlantic Ocean um, because they, you know, like they were sort of trying to compete with each other. Like who can do the better record? Was it Pet Sounds? Was it the White Album? Was it Sgt. Pepper's? Was, you know, it's like these sounds you get so invested in. And, you know, I can do that uh, really deeply. Right now, my obsessions are with the young female singer band. So that's Soccer Mommy, Beach Bunny, Claro, um, Mitski, um, you know, these young women who are Phoebe Bridger. Ah, yeah. Who are really taking rock by storm. And they're like the grandchildren of Joni Mitchell. They're like the grandchildren of Dusty Springfield and, and uh, you know, oh, Bobby Gentry. Um, so, you know, they're, they're such a rich legacy that they're drawing from, whether it's feminism, history, rock, pop, all of it, the go-go's. Uh, I, I just, yeah, I can get so deep into a particular genre and a t- particular band and only listen to that for years. So then you must have at one point, right, gone on a Beatles bender, right, where you just, yes. you went in. Now, I think there are at this point more than 1,500 Beatles books. Did you consume all of them? I did not consume all of them, but I I did quite uh, a lot of damage to the <laughs> the catalog of them. I mean, I think um, whether it's there's one that's just about the drugs they did, which I I really liked. Um, there is uh, my favorite though is the one that's only about Brian Epstein ah. because I really I think. People say, oh, it's Pete Best. He's the fifth Beatle. Or was that, is that Pete Best? No. Um, What's his well, name? No, Pete was the drummer they ditched for Ringo. Oh, it's the other one, Stu. Yeah. They're like, Stu's the fifth Beatle. Pete, Pete wasn't the fifth Beatle, but Stu was fifth. I think the fifth Beatle was actually Brian Epstein because of the way that sort of he's like going like, you know, from this record store all the way to – global domination, you know, and then missed most of it. Um, unfortunately, like died before, you know, all of the things happened, but it's really, um, it's amazing. Like I love the side players. Like, is it Alan Klein? Um, I love, uh, Yoko Ono, of course. Um, and then I love, uh, whose book was it? It's, um, uh, George Harrison's wife. You look, it's George Harrison's wife, Pat, uh, Patty Patty's, Patty Boyd's book was a great um, sort of retelling of these stories. So if you go into all of these rock 
biographies, then you, you get to a Rashomon and you sort of see the same event happening from different perspectives over and over, you know, and, um, whether that's the, the big symphonic recording of, um, all you need is love on the BBC, um, from all the different perspectives and, or the, the fabulous disaster of the big, uh, what is it? The show, the the store, the uh, Apple store. Right. Yeah, their Apple boutique. with the fool, the Apple boutique. <laughs> yeah, which I would have loved to shop there. <laughs> you know what a great thing it's a uh, you know and the, the the those artists called the fool the artist collective called the fool and they made all the outfits from um, the the those videos where they're all in paisley. So the I am the walrus videos was costumed by the fool and. All of that stuff, you know, to me, all of that side, so sidebars are really what make um, the experience to read all those books. It is an incredibly rich story. And, and of course, as, as I tell my students, I teach a Beatles class here on the Jersey Shore. Um, one of the things that makes it fairly unique is that upward trajectory. You know, they start down here and they just go all the way up uh, in a continual line and then they leave forever. It's a... Uh, it's a powerful story, and I, I love telling it every semester. Well, it's just, it's just beautiful. I know. I love it. I love it. It's just like two guys meeting at a, a church fate, fate, and it was fate that brings them together, and then, you know, going to Germany and, and uh, you know, the outfits. The outfits was – I think they were always sort of like curated. The outfits seemed to be put together by – their look was really put together by Brian Epstein. I think their look really – had a strong component in their success because of course there are gorgeous guys, but the fact that they all sort of like wear these like little suits, which is so, I think it's just something that we see again and again because it's just this successful thing. Like you now you see BTS doing it and I, I love it. Well, it was brilliant of Brian too, because right. I mean, he's trying to sell Liverpudlians to people in the capital in London and, you know, if, if you just show them up in leather or whatever they're wearing that day, it will not happen. He had to really groom that story to get over that barrier, that cultural disdain. Well, class. Class has so much to do with the way that everyone is viewed in England. And in the UK, there's such a, an unspoken hierarchy that it's less about race and so much more about class. And... You know, to be working class at that time was really um, to be invisible. And so Brian really brought them into uh, being in a kind of a, a very exciting way. I think because he was gay and because he was invested and enamored with their male beauty, that he could see, like, how can I package this in a beautiful way? And it just doesn't happen without him. There's no doubt about that. Or George Martin, right? Uh, oh, George, yes. George is actually the fifth Beatle. Like, we could, <laughs> there's probably really about 10 Beatles. Um, you know, if you think about, uh, there's Astrid also, who uh, <laughs> took all the photographs. I mean, you know, we, we really sort of boil it down. There's really probably about 10 Beatles. I would say, I would say Cynthia's in there too. Um, yeah, there are a lot of fifth Beatles. Yeah. <laughs> So let's just add them all to, to one gi giant collective. Um, but they, they really, I, and I just, I love all the sort of like the sidebar projects. I love Ringo making with the magic Christian. I, I love, I love him um, doing, 
is the documentary with it's born to boogie with um, yeah. Mark Bolin and Elton John. I love Mark Bolin popping out of a grand piano and Elton John playing it. You know, like this is like so great. I love Harry Nilsson. Um, Harry Nilsson also, I think, is kind of a, a fifth Beatle in a way too. He certainly was around those edges. There's no doubt. Yes. One thing we're doing on this show this um, this season as we attempt to come out of the pandemic, uh, which has wrought so much pain, of course, and uh, and continues to. Um, one thing we're talking about a lot this year is hope. Mm. Um, did the Beatles ever give you any sense of hope? Where do you go for your hope when you when you need to be inspired? I, I think, well, I definitely go to um, Mean Mr. Mustard and Polythene Pam, like how you could take pieces of a song and put them together to make this one grand song or that, you know, you're, um, you know, I'm always inspired by the way that the Beatles approached music because they realized that everything can be music. A door opening and closing can be music and adding that into the idea that all things that happen to you is usable art and um, they can be used to fuel your hopes and dreams, which is what I, I honestly believe. Everything Fab Four is presented by Salon.com the premier news, politics, innovation, and arts website. For more information about the podcast, visit everythingfab4.com, where you can learn more about our podcast and my latest Beatles-related book, John Lennon 1980, The Last Days in the Life. The Everything Fab 4 theme song, Seize the Day, is provided courtesy of Black Rabbit, the high-octane Beatles cover band and innovative psychedelic rock project from Rockaway Beach, Queens, in New York City. Like what you heard today on Everything Fab Four? Be sure to subscribe, give us a rating, and recommend the show to your friends. Plus, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at EF4Podcast. Distributed by Salon, Everything Fab Four is a wonderful all production with editing and post-production assistance from music industry and communication students at Monmouth University. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everyone has a story.